Andy Murray. In 2013, his historic triumph at Wimbledon made him the first player to win a singles title for Scotland since 1896. This is probably the most stressful 10 or 15 minutes of my life. Murray's success is especially meaningful to his hometown of Dunblane, which was site of the deadliest school shooting in British history. Murray was at the school when it happened. It's a very personal thing. Um, and yeah, well, I was obviously very young when it happened. But feels great pride in putting his town on the map for something positive. Just it's a really strong, strong community and I'm glad, you know, I've been able to do something um, that makes him proud. When I sat down with Murray in 2013, he opened up about the years of near misses in major tournaments. And people ask you more questions about why you haven't won and what are the reasons for that. That preceded not only his first Wimbledon win, but also a gold medal at the 2012 Olympics and a U.S. Open championship. What was the most satisfying? You know, I think mentally, I kind of showed myself that I was strong enough um, to come back from, you know, tough, tough losses. But first, Murray reveals how research and strategy have helped him to overcome some tight spots during competition. I was talking to somebody uh, close to you recently, and how true is it that you can pretty much remember every point you've played a after a match? Yeah, I mean, it, it does depend on some of the matches and some of the situations. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the time you come off, uh, come off the court and remember, uh, yeah, pretty much every point. Sometimes. You have to think about it a little bit and it takes a bit of prompting, but yeah, I can remember remember most of what happened during, during a match. How often will you get on YouTube after meeting a player uh, to look up video uh, of that person and kind of figure out how you would play the individual? Uh, well, I actually I had an injury when I was like 16, 17 on my knee and I didn't play uh, any competitions for six months. and. I, be, I pretty much spent um, hours um, every day watching matches, um, writing down tactics and ways that I would play against certain uh, certain players that were on the pro tour at the time. And that actually helped me quite a lot once I got onto the tour because I knew a lot of the players. Um, and when I was practicing with them or playing with them in matches, I kind of already had tactics sorted and, and knew how to, to play against a lot of them or how I would play against a lot of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I watch watch a lot of tennis on, on the internet. And how, how does that help when you're actually in the match? Uh, I, I just think if, if you watch, uh, if, if you're into a sport and you watch a lot of it, um, you know, as well as obviously play it a lot too, you can see, you'll see little uh, little things that, you know, not everyone will, will be able to, to pick up on. And, and when you're in, uh, in the match in a tight situation, it's very important to be able to think clearly and know what your tactics are and to remember them. Because, you know, I, w I watch a lot of boxing and it's one of those things everyone has tactics until they get hit and then the tactics kind of go out the window and people start making mistakes that the same kind of applies in tennis that you need to remember when things aren't going your way. You need to remind yourself exactly of what your, your tactics are to beat every player. And it's interesting, you, you said that's very important to be able to change uh, tactics, uh, make adjustments mid-match, but then when you're in that situation, when something's going wrong, you said it, it's sometimes really hard to actually be able to get yourself to do that. Um, in what ways? Yeah, well, I think it's just, 
you know, you get angry and frustrated um, at yourself uh, with how the result's going, sometimes how you're playing. You know, sometimes you can, if you're behind, it's easy to, to look ahead and, and worry about losing the match. Um, but since I was a kid, I didn't always have much power or strength. I didn't hit the ball much harder than everyone else. So it, tactics was a huge part of my game. And if I am frustrated and angry, that's when you forget actually to you know, use the, the right tactics and how you're going to beat an opponent. So it's been a big part of my maturing process to remember exactly um, you know, the, the tactics and, and the mental side is it's a huge part of my game. And when I'm switched on mentally and I'm not getting angry and frustrated with myself, I can use you know, my tactics much, much better. And I was going to say, it's not just kind of physical tactics, it's mental as well. I mentioned that I was speaking to your longtime trainer, Jez Green, and he was speaking about how you can determine how to best kind of play a person mentally, whether that's, you know, being very aggressive or being more casual. How does that um, help and how do you go about determining that? Yeah, I think a lot of that comes with experience and playing matches. You, you start to understand, you know, how to play against certain opponents and also how to play certain situations. Um, you know, there's certain points in matches where it's important to make sure you don't make a mistake um, and just make every single ball and force your opponent into an error. And sometimes you need to you need to be aggressive and you need to be the one dictating. And that's something that you basically learn just from playing matches, gaining more experience that way. And you're unafraid to uh, shout on court, get angry. Oftentimes you do it in the direction of friends, family, or coaches, but but it's not actually at them. Uh, explain that. Yeah, I think. Um, well, for me, the best way I can explain it is when I get pumped up as well or I'm happy on the court, I also do it in the direction of the, the box. Um, you know, 99% of the time I'm pretty mad at, at myself or angry at myself. But, you know, when you're playing in front of, you know, sometimes there's tens of millions of people watching and you're in a big stadium, you know, if you're a bit self-conscious, the natural thing to do if you're doing something that's maybe a bit childish or immature or, or whatever it is would be to look at the people that kind of make you feel uh, more comfortable um, and maybe understand uh, understand those emotions uh, and what you're going through a little bit better. So I've, I've done it since, uh, since quite a young age. Um, do, do you get self-conscious in those situations? I, I mean, I don't think about it really when I'm on the court, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's the, the reason for, for why I, you know, I do it, um, and everyone has their different routines and what they do. You know, I tend to look at my box. Some people, you know, go to their towel and you know have different little things that they do before they serve in terms of bouncing the ball and those sorts of things. And you know, it's all just ways of maybe trying to trying to focus. Your former coach uh, Brad Gilbert says, outside of Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe, you you play better angry than anyone uh, he's ever seen. But your current coach uh, Von Lendl. Uh, says the less you do that, the better you play. Um, how true do you think that is? I, I just think it's, it's a balancing act. I mean, there's, look, there's certain days where you, know, you, 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 need, you need to give yourself that little lift or whatever it is if you're, you know, if you're feeling a bit tired or a bit sluggish that sometimes you know, shouting at yourself or 
you know, G'ing yourself up a little bit will, you know, will help. There's, there's certain situations like a big, big final where you're already very nervous, you know, the pressure's there, you're gonna be fired up anyway, that it's important to conserve your energy and not use up, um, you know, too much of your energy on sort of emotions and, you know, shouting or getting pumped up after you played a good point. It's better to play a little bit more level-headed. Um, and that's something, again, that you learn over time. Oh, when speaking to how competitive you are, are there uh, famous stories of you as a kid, like getting uh, ticked off at your dad because he picked the wrong numbers on uh, a lottery ticket so he didn't end up winning, or, uh, you know, with your, uh, what was it, um, oh, grandparents playing Monopoly, throwing the uh, Monopoly boards over. How much do you, like, genuinely hate to lose? Uh, it, if it's something that I think that I'm good at, I hate losing at it. I don't mind losing so much if, you know, I don't think I'm any good at something. Like, I'm happy to try and it's fine. But, you know, there's, I've played loads of sports since I was a young kid, so I enjoy playing them. I like playing with, with friends socially, but, you know, I, I have a, a lot of fun doing it. But yeah, winning and losing is part of sport. and. I much much prefer the winning part of it, so it doesn't matter, yeah, what 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 sport it is I'm playing. I'll try and try and win. Um, I know you're big into uh, nutrition, and you don't take protein drinks or supplements. But what do you do to replenish yourself? Uh, I'll take I will take protein shakes um, at certain certain times. Um, it's just now with you know the way things are with with you know the drug testing and. Stuff so you need to be incredibly careful with what you take, especially you know you can't buy things over the counter. You need to make sure that everything's checked, you know, extremely well, so that you know there's no issues. And that's why, you know, I just I'm not into taking a lot of products because the less the less that you can less you can take, the the better. You don't want any risk of contamination or you know, whatever it could be. Uh, you know, I try and work extremely hard um, to, to get in the, the position that I'm in. And, you know, it's not worth, uh, it's not worth the risk taking, you know, a dodgy protein shake or, or whatever it is. You've just got to, got to make sure that you're professional. And uh, that's, that's a genuine concern, though, of yours, just ma making sure you never, ri I mean, You'd rather avoid taking supplements than risk yeah, anything. Yeah, it's, it's more. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just something that I'm. Yeah, I would say I would be scared of scared of doing. And you know, some people are a bit more laid back with it. I certainly would have been, you know, four or five years ago. But now, you know, I've been working really, really hard to get into the position that I'm in. Um, you know, and I wouldn't want to to mess it up by, you know just taking a whole bunch of products, not knowing what's in them, right. and then failing a, a drugs test. So you've got to be very, very careful as an athlete and very professional. Um, you know, I'd take basic stuff like fish oils, um, glucosamine for, for my joints, um, and I'll take protein shakes from, from time to time if I've had a, a hard day's training, but um, nothing in any more depth than that. When did you make the decision to really fully commit your life to tennis? Uh, I, I went over to train in, in Barcelona in Spain when I was 15. Um, 
And I'd say that was probably it, because that was when I, I mean, moved away from my family. Because I used to play in Scotland, I probably played five or six hours of tennis a week. And I was playing basically four or five hours a day over in Spain. So that was a huge, huge change to me. And that was when I started to become more professional. I learned how to work hard. I learned how to be disciplined. And that would have been it, probably around 15, 16 years old. And, and it's interesting, you were playing uh, for Britain in an under-16 championship in the final against Spain, uh, and after the match you go and play racquetball with Rafa Nadal. You both you know, were around the same age in your mid-teens at the time. And what was it about that racquetball match that ended up being so impactful on you? I mean, he didn't speak much English, I didn't speak much Spanish, but I just asked him about, you know, who and, and how he trains over in Spain and who he trains with. And he was practicing, you know, for a few hours uh, a day when he was there. And uh, he was practicing with Carlos Moya, who's a former number one in the world. He won the French Open, um, you know, and I was practicing, you know, just a few hours a week um, with, uh, with my brother. And, you know, that was when I realized that if I wanted to try and go to the next level and become a professional, I was going to have to change sort of the environment I was training in, and um, that's one of the reasons why I moved to Spain. But, but it, it made you angry, learning that. I mean, why, why did it uh, frustrate you so much? Uh, well, I think, like, when, when you're very competitive, I mean, even at that age, that was when you know, start to realize you know, that I didn't have enough sort of opportunity um, in, in Scotland and I couldn't do it. The weather, um, not enough courts, and obviously with school, I couldn't play enough. And, you know, when he was by far the best player, he's one year older than me, um, you know, and he was, he was much better than all, all of the players there. And one of the reasons for that is that he was getting great practice and with, with top players and, you know, enough hours on the court. And, that was why I was frustrated, and, that, and I remember I, I called called my mom afterwards and said I wanted to I wanted to go and go and go and try out Spain. Uh, why do you think it's one of the best decisions you've ever made? Um, because training in the in the UK, well, there was players that were better than me or of equal standard. Um, that stayed in the UK to train and a lot of them stopped playing a couple of years later. Um, I feel like they have a great understanding of how to teach players how to play the game and in Spain they have a you know philosophy really and all of the coaches teach the same way. Um, you know you do the same sort of drills and practices as, as the top players do um, and that helps when you see them doing the same exercise that you're doing on, on the court. And, you know, no one, no one cares. Like, you know, if you're, you know, I was the number one in Great Britain, but, you know, when you go over to Spain, no one has any idea who you are, you know, so you're just kind of a, yeah, you're a small fish in, in a big pond. There's no, um, there's no way of getting out of hard work there. And I was practicing with guys that were much older than me and much better than me. And, that was how I learned, learned what standards were of a professional athlete. And you've obviously gone on to have great success, won Wimbledon, won the US Open, won an Olympic uh, gold medal. But uh, you know, it's interesting, for a while you were coming, as you mentioned, very close, but 
uh, you know, losing in the, the finals. I think it was 2 a.m. on a court in Australia. You had just lost to uh, Rafael Nadal, and uh, you end up taking a taxi back to the hotel you're at, and you go for a run uh, by yourself around the hotel at uh, 3 a.m. in the morning. Why do that, and what were you thinking about? at the time? I mean, I, I just lost to him in five sets. I was 19 at the time. Uh, it was the first time I played against one of the top players in the world in, in a big event. And just physically, I wasn't quite quite ready um, or, or strong enough. And, you know, after matches like that, there's a lot of people around, um, you know, girlfriend, coach, um, you know, you do a lot of media stuff afterwards. and. Yeah, just got back to the hotel late um, and just yeah, wanted a little bit of time on my own to, to reflect, think about things a bit. Um, and yeah, I just decided to go for a run uh, on my own around the, around the area of the, the hotel and just have a little think about you know, what had happened and what I was going to need to do to, to try and uh, you know, get to the next level. Uh, the tw 2012 Wimbledon, you, you lost to uh, Roger Federer, and I, I believe from what you've said that might have been the, the most personally difficult one for uh, you to get over. Um, the the runner-up speech that you gave after that, um, what was it that uh, made you so emotional? Uh, I think, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. It had been a long time since any British uh, man had won at Wimbledon, uh, so it would have been 76 years. Uh, you know, I pretty much really got reminded about that m most days of my life, uh, you know, and, and it's not a joke. I would literally get asked about it every single day in press conferences. As tennis players, we do maybe 80 to 100 press conferences a year, one after every single match and before every tournament. And people might not understand that in the States because I don't think there's any event that has similar stature to that and any one person that's tied to an event in our country similar to how yeah. you were uh, in yeah, Britain. I mean, I mean what, what's that pressure like? I tried to kind of, I got asked by a few American journalists at the time, you know, what it was like and the example I used was, you know, someone like a LeBron James who, you know, was you know, probably the, he was the best player in the league, but hadn't you know won uh, an NBA championship. And with every year that that kind of goes on, the pressure builds more and more, and people ask you more questions about why you haven't won and what are the reasons for that. And you know, is it a mental thing? Um, you know, I saw a lot of times people were saying that in the fourth quarter of games, you know, LeBron James he wouldn't take the final shot. He wanted to pass. He didn't want to be the guy, you know, to to maybe make the mistake. And that just continues to build over time. So, yeah, but it, it would be like that if he was the only person representing the the U.S. and the only person yeah, that kind of yeah, had well, the chance to. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that was just you know kind of a, the best sort of example that I that I could find that people might understand. But yeah, it's just very very difficult. There's a you know an extreme amount of pressure during Wimbledon, not just for me but all of the British players. And then the closer you get to winning an event like that. It's tough, and that losing in that final in 2012 against uh, Federer was uh, was a tough one for me, um, you know, mentally. Um, but I, I did also think that that is the best I'd played in a Grand Slam final, and 
that's why I got over it a bit quicker. But at the time, for the few days afterwards, it was it was very uh, it was very tough. You, you said you actually had a dream after that loss that you had won the Wimbledon final and then you yeah. woke up after that was that I mean that that impacted you uh, yeah it certainly didn't it didn't help any the, the 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 thing that helped the most really was that the Olympics was coming so soon afterwards and not not many athletes get the chance to compete in, in Olympics for a start but also having one you know in in your country um, you know, that doesn't that doesn't happen often. So I was very very pumped up about that, and that's that really helped me get over the Wimbledon loss very quickly. But, but interestingly, you said you began to accept that you may not win a, a Grand Slam, and it was once you started accepting that that you felt like the game began to began to improve. Yeah, I think that it probably helped a little bit in uh, in certain situations. Um, but it was more maybe away from the court um, that it helped too. I was just kind of maybe try relieved some of that pressure because I was living every single day like as soon as I lost in a Grand Slam, I was straight away thinking about the next Grand Slam and sometimes it was four or five months away and that's just, that's not the right way to approach things. You need to kind of, as an athlete, it's boring, but you need to kind of go every single day, just try to get a little bit better every day. And, and you end up, obviously, a year later, uh, winning the 2013 Wimbledon, the first Brit in 77 years to uh, do so. But as you mentioned, uh, following the 2012 Wimbledon loss, only weeks later, you basically have a rematch of the Wimbledon final against Roger Federer, same location, only instead of a, a Wimbledon title being on the line, it's Olympic gold in the yeah. 2012 uh, London Olympics. What was the most satisfying part of that Olympic gold victory for you? Um. Well, I think, I mean, the things you mentioned there, it was against the same opponent on the same court literally four weeks later that, you know, I think mentally I kind of showed myself that I was strong enough um, to come back from, you know, tough, tough losses. I also showed that I was actually learning from, you know, a very, very tough, um, tough defeat. Um, and also the... The, the the crowd in the in the US, uh, in the Olympic final was very very different to the Wimbledon final. It was they, they were really on your side. I mean, it was right. Yeah. I mean, that uh, yeah, and, and, and like and completely. Yeah, and I think you know it does make a huge difference. Someone like um, Roger is so popular all over the world. So it doesn't matter where you play, if it's in London or Australia. You know, he gets great support everywhere he goes. And it was the first time I'd kind of been on a court against him where the whole crowd was. Uh, supporting me and it made you know I think it, it definitely has a bearing on how the match sort of plays out it was a very different crowd to, to the Wimbledon final. To what extent did you realize it was going to be that way? Uh, pretty much when we walked out on the court um, you just see all of the flags and all the different colors during Wimbledon it's it's not quite like that um, but yeah when literally as soon as we walked on the court uh, you could see it. And then it's only weeks after that you end up winning the 2012 uh, US Open, your first uh, Grand Slam. But uh, why take the bathroom break uh, before the uh, fifth set? Yeah, well, it was, I mean, there's a few reasons for, for it. I mean, we've been playing, I think it was over four hours at the time. So uh, you might have had to go yeah, to the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> you know, we obviously, we drink quite a lot too. Um, but I, I mean, there was more to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I went. I basically went off the court, and 
uh, yeah, I just looked at myself in the, in the mirror and you know, I'd been up two sets to love and he'd come back and I won the next two sets and it was kind of slipping away from me a little bit and I just sort of said to myself that, you know, I can't, I can't lose this match. Uh, you know, I, I've got to go out there and give, give, I was basically speaking to myself and just saying give everything you've got, come away with no regrets. Um, and I think it helped a lot. It settled me down. I broke him in the very first game and, and went on to, to win the match. And I think the difference, the difference was, I mean, both of us were very tired at the end. It was a long match, but you know, I'd never won a Grand Slam before, and I think I just wanted to win just just a, a little bit more and made a difference. To, to what extent was there a sense of relief after that? I mean, I mean, you, you would think that it's all, all celebration, but from what what I've read, there was almost an overwhelming sense of relief on, on your end. Yeah, I think that was immediate sort of uh, sensation or feeling that I had when I was on the court, and even for a few days afterwards, because it was strange. I wasn't like out partying and stuff. I was just I was just kind of in a, in a bit of a daze. I didn't know kind of what exactly had happened. Um, I wasn't sleeping particularly well, but, you know, I wasn't tired either, you know, so I would sleep like two hours and I would be wide awake and, you know, obviously after sort of 10 days or so, that kind of takes its toll on you a little bit. Um, but yeah, I was just so relieved. I worked really hard to, to finally do it. Um, I'd overcome a lot of tough losses um, and in the space of, a couple of months from the Wimbledon final loss, um, you know, I'd turned pretty much my whole career around from being sort of, I guess, a nearly man and, and, and nearly winning Grand Slams to winning an Olympic gold and, and winning a Grand Slam. And then that was basically the end of the first part of my career. And I'd said after that, I just want to concentrate now on, on the rest of my career and, and enjoy it. Your first coach was probably the person who first put the racket in your hand when you were two years old. Your mother, uh, Judy, who yeah. was also the coach for the Scottish uh, national tennis team. What did you learn from her uh, about the game? Um, the most important thing that my mum kind of did with me and my brother when we were growing up was that she made it fun. Um, I think in an individual sport it's very important for kids uh, to enjoy it. You know, I think it can be also easy for parents to put a lot of pressure on their kids um, and I see it a lot around tennis tournaments and I've spoken to a lot of tennis parents now and I always try and say just let them enjoy it because if they don't, once you get to a certain age, um, you know, where you're allowed to kind of make the decision as to whether you play tennis or not it's easy to just stop because you're not going to enjoy it if you're under pressure from a young age and every time I went on the court with my brother and my mum I had a great time she was always smiling always finding fun things for us to do and it made a big difference there was no pressure on us ever to play me and my brother at certain times I stopped to play um, football or soccer for you know four or five weeks and not hit a tennis ball and it was never like you you must play tennis this is the only thing you could do and with my brother the same thing happened with golf he he stopped playing tennis for three four months at a time and was just playing golf so she was just very encouraging and um, you know made it made it good fun you wrote in your autobiography, uh, quote, my whole tennis career happened because when I was growing up, my brother was much better than me at, at most things. Uh, explain how you think that impacted you. 
Well, my brother is 15 months older than me and we pretty much started playing tennis at the same time and we do, because we're so close in age, we would literally play all sports together and he was always a little bit smarter, he was a bit bigger, stronger and just better than me at all sports and, you know, I used to lose to him a lot and I was always, from a young age, I was always trying to get better, I was always trying to, I looked up to my brother and I wanted to be as good at him, as good as him at all these different things and I think that's one of the reasons why today I've always been trying to, always keep trying to, to improve. Um, and probably one of the reasons why I became very competitive because from a young age I used to lose a lot, I used to lose a lot to him, uh, which I didn't like, obviously being my brother, but it's something that you learn how to deal with and the best way I found to deal with losing was to try even harder the next time um, to, to win and that was it. So tell about the first time you finally beat your brother. Yeah, I, re I remember the uh, first can time. Can we see the fingernail too? Yeah, you can. Well, I don't know if you can see it there. It's that one that's kind of still. Okay, yeah, sure. It's, but it's broken right. here. Yeah, it's never grown back properly. Because, yeah, when I beat him, uh, we played <laughs> in a tournament in Solihull, and we sat next to each other on the minibus on the way back, which probably a mistake from my mum my letting us do that. She would have known what was going to happen, and I was obviously winding him up um, that I'd beaten him um, for the first time. And he punched me on the finger uh, and yeah when we got off of the, the service station my finger had turned completely blue and yeah lost lost my fingernail which I wasn't that disappointed with but something I always remember because I see it every single day it was never grown back properly. I, I know this is a sensitive subject so I, I'm not going to ask you certainly not going to ask you about the actual uh, event and I know um, you have limited knowledge of this because you were young at the time in elementary school, but uh, you were at school at the time when a gunman opened fire at your school uh, and it ended up being one of the, or the worst shooting in British history, school shooting. Uh, you know, I, I wonder, um, looking back on that, how um, impressed, proud are you of how your town has recovered from that? Yeah, well, it's been, they recovered unbelievably well from it. I mean, it's not something that, you know, anyone would ever, ever want to go through, but um, it's something that, you know, obviously, when I go back there, um, you know, for me personally, it's been nice to do something. You know, I'm, ve I'm very proud of, of where, where I come from, where I've grown up. So yeah, when I get the chance to, uh, you know, I like to go back. Like after, um, you know, the Olympics in the U.S. Open, I went back to celebrate back home with, with everyone, and the whole, the whole town's recovered unbelievably well. Um, a lot of my family still live there. Um, I've spent, I mean, my grandparents have been there 40, 50 years. My mum's lived there all of her life. My dad still lives there, so. Yeah, we all go back there, um, you know, as much as we can, and um, it's, uh, it's a great little town. A few years ago, you mentioned you began researching it and looking into what happened a lot. Why was that important to you to do? Uh, well, I think it's, it's going to be a pretty important part of anybody's life, something like that. Um, it's a very personal thing. Um, and yeah, well, I was obviously very young when it happened, so I had limited knowledge of how 
big an event it was and, and exactly what, what had happened and just important to, to know. You know, I just I just wanted to know. I was very curious about it. It was something I probably tried to kind of black out from my memory and just still not something I particularly enjoy talking about. As you continue to have tennis success, how special is it for you to be able to put a positive light on the, the town? Yeah, that's that's one of the, the nice things of, of what I've, I've got to do. I, like I said, when I went back to celebrate after US Open and you know, the whole time was was out there and, you know, on the tennis courts and just on the streets. I got to see loads of, you know, my teachers and friends from back at school and yeah, it's just it's a really strong, strong community and I'm glad, you know, I've been able to do something um, that makes them proud. What was that turnout like when you came back to Dumblane for your homecoming? I mean, how amazed were you by how packed the streets were with people? Yeah, it was um, it was it was pretty amazing because I had never done anything like that before. So you have no idea how many people are going to come, if anybody's going to come at all. Um, it was obviously raining uh, as always in, in Scotland <laughs> on the day, so that you also think that maybe that's going to put a lot of people off too. But <clears throat> like I said, it was just it was really nice. A lot of people came out. Um, you know, and necessarily feel like it was a celebration for for me. It was for for everybody, and I I, I could say I, I got to see so many people that I knew from back you know back home, from school teachers, uh, people I grew up playing tennis with, tennis coaches, um, and yeah, it was just walking down the high street is a walk that I used to do every single day back from school. Um, it's so it's a tiny little place, but I remember when I was a kid that felt like such a long walk, and it was like nowadays it's literally it's like a one minute walk up the street. But before I just from my memory, you know, from when you're small, everything seems so much bigger. Um, but yeah, it was just it was nice. There was so so many people there, and it was a good day. The the state of British tennis. Uh, in reading your autobiography, and obviously your opinion uh, could have been changed because the book was or could have changed since the book was several years ago. But I, I was surprised at some of the really harsh words you you had about uh, the the state of tennis there. At least uh, then you wrote in your book. I didn't want to train at one of the national centers in the UK because of the attitude of players and some of the coaches. Uh, you went on to say they're spoiled pretty lazy. Um, same feelings now, or has your opinion changed since then? Um, yes, I mean, it's, it's a tough one because I'm not around it as much at that age. Um, when, I, well, when I was younger, I spent, I used to travel with a, a lot of the players and the coaches, and I would go on trips with the national, you know, federation and the top four or five players. And, you know, when I would go and train, down in, in London, you know, I would I would be around the um, you know be around the, the national centre, so I would I would see it. Now I'm I'm not around it as much, but you know we, you know with the amount of money that's invested in the sport and has been over a number of years, the the, the lack of depth is um, is something that needs to well it's, it's got 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 to change. Why do you believe there was so much jealousy and negativity at the time? I don't know. It was, um, you know, it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting situation to <clears throat> to be in as as a young player because you know when we used to travel as a group, it was just 
you know, everyone would kind of get on off the court, but it was almost like no one wanted anyone to do well when they were on the court. And these are kind of friends of yours, and there was just, it was a sort of competition, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a nice competition, it wasn't a nice feeling. And that was, you know, again, one of the reasons why I went over to Spain, because I just wanted to be away from all of that nonsense, because it just doesn't help being bitter and, and jealous and, you know, not supporting each other. Um, I, and I don't know exactly why it was. And you said it was much different in, in Spain. What suggestions would you have for how to fix it? I think just being supportive of each other, wanting, you know, your friends and, you know, your, your, uh, your, your training partners to do well. I think a lot of it, um, you know, whereas in, in Spain and in France where there's a lot of depth, you know, that you have a club system and people are very attached to their clubs. When, when you're in the UK, a lot of the trips, basically, so you go away on a trip, it's dictated by you know, who's the top four or five players in each particular age group. And because there isn't loads of players, we practice with each other all the time. And it was like, if you were number three, sometimes you wouldn't get to go on a trip. So in some ways you would want the guy that's number two to do badly so that you would then you know move up to the number two spot so you would then get selected for a trip and it was just it just just doesn't it just doesn't work that way it's better if everyone's supporting each other you you just get away from all of it um, and yeah there's less less things to worry about in the remaining uh, moments I have with you there was one story I heard you tell which I, I thought was uh, pretty funny. You're getting ready to uh, be honoured by Prince William in the UK, and yeah. right as you're getting ready to leave, uh, drug testers showed up. Yeah, yeah, literally. How does that? Work? It was almost like it was planned. Uh, Which yeah, maybe it was. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So basically, I was just I was basically getting changed to go in my suit. The car was waiting outside to take us. Got a knock on the door. Well, they, they rang the, the door, and it was the drug testers. And um, you know, there's certain rules now with the drug testing, where when you have blood taken, you have to sit down for 20 minutes before they can take the blood. So I was getting ready to go, and then obviously they arrive. You have to sit down and wait for te 20 minutes before they can take the blood. The car's waiting outside, and obviously, a pretty big day. You don't want to be don't want to be late for that. So then, yeah, you're sitting there have to wait for the blood you know, have it have it done. And then, yeah, I was, I was out the door and thankfully, thankfully made it on time. But, you know, it's just one, it's one of those things now, the drug testing is getting a lot more strict across all sports because there's been, you know, a number of problems across a lot of sports now. And it's something that it's, it's probably, is gonna get more and more strict. There's gonna be more and more testing, which is, is good. And it's really the, the only way, you know, for the, the public to have, you know, confidence that, they're watching clean sport because that's that's what everybody wants to see. Really a pleasure, Andy. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Thanks for making the time to do this. No problem. In the years since our interview, Murray earned yet another Olympic gold, a second Wimbledon title, not to mention a knighthood. Thanks for listening to this edition of the In-Depth Podcast. If you haven't already, please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and to watch us spend time with other tennis greats like Novak Djokovic, Billie Jean King, and John McEnroe. Head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger or follow at Graham Bensinger on TikTok.